Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, Jesus tells a little story about a wedding that got started late because the wedding party hadn't arrived yet. Have you ever heard of such a thing? I know this will shock you, but this still happens. In my last church, one bride showed up at 4.45 for her 4 o'clock wedding. But my organist and I got pretty good at choreographing these things, and John and I are learning how to do this together, too. If the appointed hour arrives and the bride's room hasn't seen said bride yet, I just sneak into the chancel and tap John on the shoulder, and he improvises a prelude that will turn out to be longer than the wedding itself. Contradicting common gender stereotypes, Jesus tells a story about a groom, not a bride, who's late for his own weddings. His own wedding. Very late. Hours late. It's midnight. Now, I don't know when first century Palestinian weddings commonly began, but it can't have been anywhere near midnight. This is rudely late. As you might expect in a patriarchal society, first century Palestinian weddings were all about the groom. Not the bride. Here's the groom, is what they'd sing. The bride was just an accessory. The father of the bride would sign the deed of property over to her new husband. She was just property. Now, weddings were often held in the home of the groom's father, so there are all the guests standing around the chuppah in the backyard waiting for the wedding's maximal moment, the glorious arrival of the bridegroom from his own home. Now, in Jesus' little story, the wedding must have been a fancy one because there were ten bridesmaids. I've done that myself, shoehorned ten bridesmaids and ten groomsmen and a bride and a groom and her father and a flower girl and a ring bearer in this little space here. Now, in addition to all the standard bridesmaids' duties, you know, squealing, weeping, making sure the bride doesn't run away with cold feet, assisting her with all the complicated ablutions of her hair and makeup and a fussy dress of Byzantine complexity. In addition to all of that, the bridesmaids were charged with meeting the bridegroom while he was yet far off on his approach and escorting him the rest of the way to the altar with dancing feet and blazing light from something like those little oil-fueled wicker garden torches you see at beach parties in Harbor Springs. This is what everybody's waiting for. In Jesus' day, it was the groom who marched to the altar in all his sartorial splendor to the strains of Wagner or Mendelssohn, escorted by beautiful young women bearing torches aloft. Unfortunately, this particular bridegroom is so late for his own wedding that the rabbi has wandered over to the buffet table for some sustenance. All the guests have gathered around the bar for free drinks, and the bridesmaids have dozed off waiting for him so that when the off-duty traffic control cop tells the rabbi that the groom is on his way, the bridesmaids flutter awake and try to light their oil lamps to illuminate his ceremonial approach. But, of course, the oil has been exhausted by now. Five of them, ex-Girl Scouts, I guess, have planned ahead with a spare flask of oil, and five of them haven't. And when the five have-nots ask the five haves to share their oil, the five haves cruelly refuse because there isn't enough for all of them. 
and tell the five have-nots to go find a corner deli who just happens to stock garden torch fuel oil that's still open at midnight. But unfortunately, of course, this is in the days before Walmart, 24-7. So by the time the five have-nots come back to the party, the gate's been locked, and the groom, whose fault this whole thing is in the first place, pretends he doesn't know them. His bride's bridesmaids. Now, OPEC can cause an oil shortage in the Middle East by curtailing production in the hope of driving the price of oil back up above $80 a barrel, but that's not the only thing that can cause an oil shortage in the Middle East. There's also foolishness. Now, once again this morning, it's my happy task to remind you that you know a lot more Greek than you think you do. In this passage about those oilless bridesmaids, Matthew uses a colorful and versatile Greek word. In the nominative case, it is moros, which of course in the accusative case becomes moron, which needs no translation. Not to put too fine a point on it, Jesus calls these five oilless bridesmaids morons. And you don't need a PhD in theology to get Jesus' message, do you? It's very simple. The Boy Scouts have pilfered their motto from Jesus. Be prepared. Here are some things to notice about this story. First of all, notice the most obvious thing. The bridegroom's arrival is delayed. There's no arguing with that, is there? It's been 2,000 years. Jesus and Paul and their contemporaries, Jesus' disciples, the ones who worked with him and walked with him and laughed with him and cried with him, they all expected that after Jesus died and then rose and then left, he'd come back. And I mean soon, like right away, in their own lifetimes. And then about 20 years after Jesus left, his contemporaries started to die out, and this caused much consternation in the baby church. And year give, gave way to year, and the fulfillment of all these dreams of justice and peace failed to materialize, and life was still hard, and Rome still ruled. And these early eyewitnesses began to die off, and by the time Matthew comes along, around 80 A.D., 50 years after Jesus, the early church had some explaining to do. And there are some who think that this little parable of Jesus isn't a story of Jesus at all, but rather a story Matthew himself concocted to cheer up the church, to remind them to stay awake, to keep an extra flask of oil for the delayed arrival of the bridegroom. So the bridegroom's arrival is long delayed, but it's not uncertain. It's unscheduled, but it's not uncertain. The Son of Man, says Jesus, will come as a thief in the night. Of that day or hour, no one knows, not even Jesus himself. And to change the metaphor, as Jesus himself does, the bridegroom is late for his own wedding, and we don't know when he'll arrive. To change the metaphor yet again, any indifferent frat boy can cram for the final exam with an all-nighter because it's on his schedule. But it takes a disciplined scholar to survive the intermittent, unexpected pop quizzes. And this is a pop quiz. We don't know when it's coming. It's unscheduled, but it's not uncertain. We don't know when it's coming, but we know that it's coming. 
And now, look, I wouldn't blame you if you've given up on the literal idea of a second coming of Jesus at the last day when he'll judge the quick and the dead and arrive with trumpets blaring, corpses rising, angels flying, and earthquakes quaking. We're rationalists, you and I, and that's just too much to expect and too much to believe. We don't read the Left Behind series, you and I. Still, the bridegroom's coming, literally or figuratively, the bridegroom's coming. There will be a final day of reckoning. We will meet the maker of all the stars and worlds. <laughs> Near the end of his life, C.S. Lewis began to think hard about what might well turn out to be an imminent meeting with his creator. And as he conjured in his imagination with this image of that final reckoning, he saw God turning to an angel and with a sly grin saying, Gabriel, bring me Mr. Lewis's file. Is there anything in your file worth reading? So, what will the bridegroom find us doing when he returns unannounced? You know, November 9 is an extremely portentous day on our calendars. We don't make enough of it. It's a day to remind ourselves how much justice and peace and freedom there is still to work for in this beautiful but broken world. It should be a holiday. We should get the day off when it doesn't fall on Sunday. First of all, of course, it's Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. On November 9, 1938, Nazi stormtroopers destroyed 7,000 Jewish businesses, set fire to 900 synagogues, killed 91 Jews, and sent 30,000 to concentration camps. The streets were littered not only with broken glass, but with fine paper confetti. Do you know what it was? It was the remains of Torahs snatched from these burning synagogues. The scrolls of the Jews, the sacred law of God. And of course it was Joseph Goebbels, Nazi propaganda minister who sent the German public into the streets with his inflammatory speech. We shed no tears for the Jews, he said. We won't apologize for destroying these synagogues. They've stood in our way long enough. You see what happens when you shred the sacred scrolls of the Torah and throw them in the streets? You know what you get? You get the Holocaust. But on to happier things. Do you remember what happened 25 years ago today, 1989? And those of you who are of a certain age, do you remember what life was like before that? Do you remember Mao Zedong? Do you remember Korea? Do you remember hiding under your school desk during the bomb drills? Do you remember Khrushchev telling us that he would crush us? Do you remember the Cuban Missile Crisis? Do you remember Vietnam? Do you remember Ronald Reagan's evil empire? And do you remember that it all came to a crashing halt on November 9, 1989, when that Berlin Wall came crashing down? Do you remember that journalist who sent back his report to the BBC? He said, I am standing on the Berlin Wall. He would have been shot for that the day before. And do you remember the 10,000 people who streamed through that breach in the first 10 minutes before they stopped counting? And do you remember the West Berliners who were running the other way towards the wall to show their new friends the way to freedom? 
And, you know, I know that other implacable enemies have rushed into the vacuum formerly occupied by the Soviet Union. There's the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda and Vladimir Putin himself, who sometimes acts like Khrushchev redux. Yesterday in Berlin, Mikhail Gorbachev said that he fears we're on the verge of another Cold War. So let's pray and work to see that that doesn't happen. And in the meantime, remember that November 9, 1989 was the greatest victory for freedom since August 15, 1945. We don't make enough of this splendid day. And so what will the bridegroom find us doing when he comes? Will he find us shunning and persecuting those who are different from us? Or will he find us chiseling a breach in a constricting wall so that people might breathe free? Or maybe neither. Maybe he'll find us neither good nor bad, neither hot nor cold, neither noble nor ignoble, but just sleeping dozing off in the corner, out of the way, safe and innocuous. So keep your flask full. Attend carefully to the Christ-shaped existence that he showed us during his brief sojourn here. Do you remember that old African-American spiritual? That old slave song? These African-Americans who were determined to be found working when their king came back. There's a king in Captain High and he's coming by and by and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. You'll hear his legions charging in the regions of the sky and you'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. He was hated and rejected. He was scorned and crucified. Yes, you'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. He'll be crowned by saints and angels when he comes. They'll be shouting loud hosannas to the man they just denied. And I'll kneel among my cotton when he comes. Will he find you loving neighbors when he comes? Will he find you teaching children when he comes? Will he find you feeding hunger when he comes? Will he find you healing illness when he comes? Will he find you praying mercy when he comes? Will he find you living justly when he comes? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.